right, let's say you woke up tomorrow. And when you woke up, all the social structures you know were suddenly gone. Government, the police, military, criminal justice system, organized community of any kind, even family systems, churches, they just were gone. If you did that, and if it was every man for himself, here's a question for you. I mean, just picture that for a second. I know that might be hard. But if you did that, what effect would that have on your standards, your ideas of what's right and acceptable, what's wrong, what's unacceptable? What, what effect might it have on your morals or on your attitude? That's kind of what happens in The Walking Dead. Rick Grimes, who's a deputy sheriff, wakes up from a coma, and the world has changed around him while he's in it. And the whole show is him finding, looking for his family, finding other survivors of this apocalypse thing, that, and everything else has crumbled. And it's mostly about survival at that point. They have more, uh, far more questions than answers, and they don't know what to do about it. And so it raises a whole lot of, of questions. It's a theme of the show, The Walking Dead. What is the, what is the basis of our morality? What's the basis for our standards? What, what are they for you? If there, were no, if there was no accountability for any of your choices, no one to hold you uh, accountable for, for anything you would do, what would guide you? Some of the characters in that show and the creator of the show, it was created as a graphic novel, a comic book series by Robert Kirkman, talked about that a little bit. And this is what they had to say. Look at that. There's a phrase uh, for it. They call it survivalist morality. If really what you're most driven by is just staying alive, how would it affect what, what you consider right or wrong? What would you do? What would you not do? What would be ethical? What would be unethical? What would be moral or immoral? What would be right and what's wrong? In the, in the world of the walking dead, everything that's been left, whether it's a car or gasoline or a house, or medicine in a store, or food, or supplies, it, people don't mind taking it. Because it's about survival now. It's every man for himself. It's kind of finders, keepers. You're not worrying about whose is what, whose possessions there are. And it even extends into the idea about life itself. 
How important is it that you stay alive? And what if it costs somebody else's life for you to stay alive? That question gets posed a lot there. So is it okay to take a life? One, uh, one writer uh, uh, who has analyzed this show says, sometimes the impersonal conflicts present a great, greater danger to their continuing survival than the zombies that roam the country. Some people have said, The Walking Dead isn't really a show about zombies. It's a show about life and about morality. Like you heard, it's a morality tale. They go on to say, this includes dealing with predatory human survivors, dangerous in their own right, and hostility from the scattered remains of a struggling human populace who are focused on their own survival now, now that the structures of society have collapsed. In the show, there, uh, it is fair, come, becomes fairly common for people to sacrifice the life of others to preserve themselves or the people that are close to them. And you say, well, that's just a show. But it happens in real life, too. It's coming up on a year, right, since Hurricane Sandy? Is that right? Coming up on a year was October. As soon as Hurricane uh, Sandy hit the East Coast, the first thing that happened afterwards, they evacuated law enforcement, and, and they could, there were certain places where they could not get emergency vehicles. In those places, the next thing that happened was looting broke out. Reports of uh, robberies and fights surfaced on Coney Island, which was forced to evacuate all emergency responders and law enforcement personnel. It didn't take long for individuals and gangs to organize. One person, a pharmacy worker, said the water went away, and these people started walking down the streets and just robbed stores. Another one said, people are turning on each other. They're attacking each other. Desperation does something to your sense of what's right and what's wrong, what you're capable of doing. In the book of Proverbs, it says this. uh, It's a prayer. God, give me neither poverty nor riches. And one of the reasons is if I have poverty, otherwise I might become poor and I'd steal. And so dishonor the name of my God. It's almost like an understood thing that our, my rap morality will change if, the th- if it becomes a matter of life and death, if the things that are most important to me become ri- risked or not. And so a lot of, we will adjust. Humans will adjust or abandon what's right for the sake of preservation because the rules change. There's an old book called Lord of the Flies that a lot of you read. What happens when a group has to function as a society when there is no structure around it? And it happens in, in a show like The Walking Dead, too. So that if somebody poses a threat to the safety of people, a bunch of people, they have nowhere else to turn for their, to be protected, so they just decide on their own whether it's okay to do what some of them might think might be uh, immoral, to eliminate the person. Here's a discussion that they have where that happens. Thank <laughs> you. 
If you have a Bible, I invite you to take a look at Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament. I'm going to show you some other passages too, but we're going to come to Romans 5 in just a minute. How, how, do, how are we supposed to determine, I mean, where you live, what, what is really right and what's really wrong? Let's do what's right. Is, who determines it? Does it change? It is it subject to, because the circumstances are different, then what's right and what's wrong changes for the sake of survival, for the sake of protecting the things that are most important? What are we supposed to do with that? And are we capable uh, as people of changing it if the circumstances would change drastically? You know what's probably true about that is you don't know for yourself until you're tested. You don't know how you'd react in a circumstance like that until you would find yourself. Oh, I can say, oh, no, I would be noble. Oh, no, I would have high standards until I'm in that position. And if some of us would say, oh, no, no, that's not true. My standards are higher than that. The fact is that most, if not all of us, right now live in a world, right now we live in a situation where the circumstances have affected our morality. We have decided to violate some things that might be considered right or wrong just because we have decided that the circumstances warrant it. it may not, we may say, oh, taking a life, well, that's extreme. But right now, we're very, very arbitrary on whether we say we're right or wrong because a whole lot of us will say, oh, it's not a big deal that I sleep with someone I'm not married to. Well, you know, downloading an MP3 illegally, well, that's not a big deal. Well, all right, if I don't tell completely the truth, because if I tell the truth, I will lose my job. My family will suffer. So I fudge it a little bit. I lie a little bit. I cheat just a little bit. And, of course, there's laws being debated in our culture right now about whether or not you have the right to take a life if you feel threatened by somebody. We tend to have arbitrariness to our morality as it goes. There's a a short story that was written years ago. It was called Button Button. There have been Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, There was a movie a few years ago called The Box that was based on this short story. Where some a, a family that's destitute and needs money is brought a box by a strange man, and they're told that if you push the button on the box, you will come into a significant amount of money, but somebody that you do not know will die. And they have to decide whether they will push the button or not. Let me just ask you a question. Let me, let me just twist that up a little bit. 
Let's say that today you went home and sitting on your table was a button with the instructions. You walk in the door, there's nobody there, but there are instructions. And it says, if you do not push this button today, there is a 50-50 chance your life will end before the end of the day. If you do push the button today, there is a 100% chance that pushing the button will kill somebody else. What would you do? I mean, what would you really do? You pretty much have only two choices. You either push it or you don't. I want to tell you that I would be noble. And I'll take a 50% chance that I won't die today because I don't want anybody else to. But you put that button in front of me and it sits there all day and I'm wondering if I'm feeling funny or if anybody's knocking at the door or if there is a knock at the door or somebody busts in the door. I don't know what I do with that button. Do you? When the show raises the question, where does our morality come from? Here's where God speaks into that. God has something to say about that. Because in God's way, in God's world, there's something that's, that he says crystal clear about where our morality is, what's right and what's wrong. He says that what is right, what is holy, what is just, has nothing to do with whether the circumstances change or not. There are absolutes in this world that God has established. They come from him. There are passages like Psalm 77 that says, Your ways, O God, are holy. You're the one who sets that standard. He is the rock, and all his ways are just, Deuteronomy says. And so the call of of the earliest laws given to man were, So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Don't turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land you possess. The situation doesn't determine standard, according to God. It's not what option hurts the least amount of people, what option protects the most people, what option works the best, what option feels the best, what option protects me or helps, helps me the fastest, what option... Saves my life even. Because when, we, when we're led to that, this is what Proverbs says, 21, all a man's ways seem right to him. But Yahweh, the creator, the one and only, God Almighty, he weighs the heart. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to him, to the Lord, than acts of worship, than sacrifice. And so the psalmist writes in Psalm 106, So blessed are they who maintain justice, who constantly do what is right. They don't change it based on the need of the moment or the circumstances around them or even what the cost is. The whole basis of wisdom in Proverbs 2 says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. Okay. Sure, I get it. God, God's way is right. He says what's right. All right, 
But what if my life depends on it? I mean, that's what this show is about. What if life depends on, what if survival depends on my choices? How does that affect things? 2 Corinthians 3, 13 says, As for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. And as a basis for that, understand who you fear the most. Jesus put it this way. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. In other words, don't let those, the influence of whether you live or die be the determining factor on what you decide is right or wrong and what you choose to do. Whether it's physical death or or, or if it's a metaphor for life, that I, there, there's a part of my, my world that will die. There were situations that will be affected. Don't be afraid of, the, of that which kills that. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Look no further than Jesus. And you got Romans 5? Here, here's Jesus Christ who comes in the flesh, lives a human life. Not only to be the absorber of our sin, which we'll talk about later, but to be a model of what God intended when he said, this is why I created humans, how I, I, how I created them to function. Jesus, who decided whether he would do what is right or what is wrong, based solely on what his father had scripted for human beings. And Romans 5 talks about the choice Jesus had to make. It's referred to other places, too. But I'm just going to jump into the middle of a fantastic passage, which we'll come back to, and I encourage you to read more. Verse 6 of Romans 5 says, See, at just the right time, When all the rest of humanity, when we were still powerless, Jesus Christ, he died in place of. He died for ungodly people. Now, it makes a statement about human beings. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous one, sacrificing your life for somebody else. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. You might know somebody who's done that. But here's what God did. Verse 8. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. It's while we're still sinners, while we're still guilty, while nothing has evoked it, Jesus Christ made a choice. And it says Christ died for us. He made the decision that nothing was more important than doing what was right in the sight of his father. What was right in the sight of his father was a plan, a plan to rescue humanity from an from a disease, the disease of sin, from the penalty of death. That was what he just determined what was right. Jesus Christ had a choice. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you see him wrestling with the choice. In order for that plan to be enacted, he's got to make a decision. He's got to decide whether the morality shifts because of survival or not. If he doesn't allow other lives to be taken, he has to lose his own life. Jesus made a choice. When he did, he became a model of what God said he made man to be. Even when we were not deserving of it, he did what was right. He did what was good, even if it cost him his life. See, Jesus went to the cross with you and I in mind, and nobody made him do it. He wasn't under compulsion. He wasn't going to have to answer to anybody. There was no one who was going to, his ratings weren't going to go down if he didn't do it. But he chose to do it. Because he chose to do what was right, 
no matter what the repercussions might be. He did it on behalf of a group. And we're going to call this group the Walking Dead. Because there's something else that's interesting about this whole genre and this whole show, whether you've seen it or you haven't seen it. In the, the world of The Walking Dead, there are people who are literally doing that. They're walking and they're dead. We call them zombies. Now, what's funny, and I read an article about this, they said, okay, if this is supposed to be the real world and an epidemic breaks out, it's a real world and everything except the fact that they have never heard the term zombie before because they don't call them zombies. They call them walkers and biters. Why don't they have, just call them zombies? That's, look, oh, it actually happened. There are zombies. They don't call them that. They never answer why that's the case. It's an aside. Okay. We love zombies in our culture right now. We love them. I mean, there's... That we've introduced zombies into Abraham Lincoln's story, we, into old English, you know, tales of literary. We, we've got zombies everywhere. In, a, in about a month, you're going to see them walking the streets with bags. There's zombies, and we love zombies. And there's theories about why we love zombies so much. Some people, people are actually studying this. Esther Brown wrote in Confessions of a Walking Dead Naysayer, she said, the reason we like them is because they're a metaphor representing our animal selves and externalizing fears of primitive man. Their, their cultural resurgence is a manifestation of an anxiety regarding civilization's trajectory to a wasteland world populated by a zombified public. I, I don't even know what that means. English professor at Clemson University says, we turn to zombies when we're feeling high levels of cultural dissatisfaction and economic upheaval. When a culture... When as a culture we feel disempowered, it represents that. We feel we're experiencing economic crisis. Zombies become more popular. Some people have said they represent the insatiable desire of humanity, our thirst for fossil fuels. We just must have them no matter what. The mindlessness of technology. Like technology has turned us into minds of mush and we just walk around like this. I think it'd be okay just to say, no, we just think they're kind of cool. But a revelation happened. And it happened in the show, and it was intentional. A revelation that comes out in The Walking Dead when they describe what is true about these things. It happens in a conversation where, they, where a secret comes out. A secret that kind of changes everything. Here is that conversation. Yeah. 
The title, The Walking Dead, is not talking about the zombies. The walking dead are the human survivors. They're the walking dead because, first of all, they're being hunted and it's inevitable that they will be killed. But even more important than that, according to the author, they are the walking dead because... They are infected with the same disease. And when their life either ends naturally or ends prematurely, they will become the same state as the ones they're fighting. There is a profound truth in that. Because in our lives, there is something that's true too. In all our lives, we are... You and I, we're walking around through this world trying to survive the evils of it, aren't we? We consider ourselves pretty decent people, but we're surrounded by a whole lot of indecency. We, we hope that we are different than that. We want to be, we want to, we, we consider ourselves to be okay. And we see evil and we say, oh, how terrible, I could never be like that. We see people who are lost, we have, we see, and we hear stories about even eternity, and who will be separated from God? And we say, it's awful for those people. And there's a reality that God has to say about that. It is as daunting as what those people just heard. It is that you and I are also the walking dead. We are all infected with the same exact disease and the same guaranteed end. Psalm 51 5 says, surely I was sinful from my birth. From the time my mother conceived me, the disease was infected within me. Are you in Romans 5? This is how it says it there. This is how it happened. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and in death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. He's going to say something about that. One man, Adam, the head of our race, made a decision, and the infection entered the bloodline, the DNA. It has been passed on ever since. By one man, sin entered the world, and as a result of that, death entered through that sin. He says it again. He says it several times, almost to try to reinforce the point. Verse 15 of Romans 5. The gift isn't like the trespass. In the many, many died by the trespass of the one man. Come back and read the rest in just a minute. Look at verse 17. By the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. The Bible actually goes so far as to say, as to to call it, our, our condition, dead. We are actually considered by God walking dead. This is what Ephesians 2 says about it. As for you, 
You're dead in your transgressions and sins. Like the rest of the people around you, Jew or Gentile, church-going, not church-going, like everybody else, we're by nature objects of wrath. We are without hope and without God in the world. There's a certainty about our condition. It's a certainty about our physical condition. Try as we might, your body is dying. Right now, your body is dying. It's moving towards death. You can try to stave off the effects as long as you want, but it is, you know what? It's going to happen. We are walking toward death, but it's not just our body. Spiritually, we are dead. Sin has infected and blackened our heart. And eternally, we are dead. And it raises a question then. Okay, so where's God in all this? I mean, where's God in our world? Where's God in that world? There's an interesting discussion that happens between the, sh- the, the main character of this show and another one of the characters about God when they have this conversation. Take a look. In that world, the uh, idea about God is there's, there's a kind of a sense of um, maybe a sense of punishment happening, or maybe a sense of abandonment is going on. It's about the best explanation about where God is. So I'm left to fend for myself. I'm left to make my best choices. Save myself. I mean, that's what this is all about. How do we save our race? How do we save ourselves? The question there is asked, and it raises this idea that might God's hand be involved more than we think if we just were to look at it more correctly? And maybe even more profound than that is this question. Might it be that survival is not the highest goal here. That there's more going on that involves God. See, this is where it comes down to where you and I live, because it happens in our lives. 
that we, most of us, are trying to find a way to make our lives work. We're trying to way to rescue our situation. We're trying to way to find a way to m- make our world cooperate and get things to happen in a way that we feel like preserves what we think is what we're alive for. And when God speaks to that, he says something very, very distinct from it. He invites us to recognize our inability to do that. Our inability to produce or preserve aliveness for ourselves. Some of us, some of us in the room, and we're doing it right now, we're fighting everything in our world that is trying to block us, block the path from us getting what we think will give us survival in our world. And Jesus said this, not only did he say this, this is repeated six times in the New Testament. Six times. He says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Pause there for a minute. Whoever puts their energies into saying, my survival, making my life work, that's what I'm putting my energies into, you will lose it. But whoever loses his life, for me, will find it. The paradox continues. He says, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, and yet he forfeits his soul? Because here is what God does. In real, here's what I believe God would say. If he were here and we're talking about the theme of this show and how it applies to our lives, there is one huge distinction between what we see in that world and what is true in the world that God does live in and, and in which we exist. It is that the God of the universe is not only alive, he does the inconceivable and the impossible. There is one absolute conclusion that the people in this show have drawn about walkers, about zombies. They use the word that they have turned. Once that has happened, they are absolutely convinced that the human being that they have been is gone. They are dead. They are hopeless. There is nothing that could do anything about that. They have turned. It's, it's final. They're dead. And God says, I am the one who takes what is dead and I bring it back to life. I can bring a soul that is dead back to life. It is not turned forever. I can bring a life that's on a path. I can turn that life and it can go in the complete opposite direction. God says to circumstances and situations that we think are hopeless and dead and relationships that are broken and completely hopeless in our minds. God says, I am capable of bringing that back to life. I am a reanimator. I am a redeemer. I can heal that which you think as cannot be healed. Romans 5 says it. Romans 5, look at verse 15 again. The gift God gives is not like the trespass. It's not like the disease that came in. If the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more? Did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. Judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses trespasses, and brought justification. If by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
You see, at Jesus Christ, there is no lost cause. No one is gone while they're still breathing. There is no situation that is irredeemable. There is no relationship that can't be restored. There's no marriage that can't be healed. There's there's no soul that can't be brought to life. He uses the same terminology in Ephesians 2. He says, because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, look what he does. He unzombifies people. He makes us alive with Christ, even when we were walking dead, if I can throw in my little commentary. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you're saved. What, what is your walking dead situation? What is your hopeless situation? What did you carry in with you today that you said either your own life is on a path where you don't see an end or there's a relationship that you say it is so broken that it could never be restored. There's an attitude that is so dark, so evil, that nothing will ever change. It's turned. It's dead. You bring that to God. And the hope that he gives is at least in your soul. Watch him bring you to life. Watch him bring healing. Watch him take what is dead and give it life again. I invite you to, even as we worship, to think about what that is. And maybe it's, it's your, your actual standing with God. Maybe you don't even know where you stand with him. It's just you're a sinner and you're trying to make life work. And he'd say, come, admit you can't. Present it to me. Come to the cross of Jesus, and he will pay for it. Maybe it's a relationship or, or, or a, a financial constraint or a health condition or something that you say it has seemed so hopeless that it has just turned me dark. Allow him to give you a hope that goes beyond whether or not that situation gets resolved. He is the one who gives life. Let's turn to him. Would you stand with me? We'll pray, and then we'll worship. We present ourselves as those incapable of healing ourselves or our situations. We present ourselves here today. And if this is true, God, I believe it is. If it's true that you are the one source in the universe who could take that which is dead and turn it back to true health and life, we invite you to do that, to start with our soul. Make us people who, as an act act of worship, present ourselves to you and say, Bring us back to life. Give us your hope, and we will celebrate your goodness. We will shout your praises for doing it. We worship you now in the name of your Son.